Hey, go ahead and grab your Bibles or uh, turn your phone on, whatever device you're using. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5 today. Nehemiah chapter 5. And as you turn there, who's had a chance to maybe watch some of the opening ceremony of the Olympics or catch some of the Olympics? I see some of you guys there um, from Beijing, China. Obviously, as a, as a dad who's adopted two children um, from China, um, there's a, a personal connection there. But one of the things as I look at the Olympics that I'm reminded of is God's heart for the nations. Um, and so here's what I want us to do as we jump in this morning to just pause and pray. Listen to these words from Revelation chapter 5. You've got the lamb who took the scroll. And it says this, it says, for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Our God's heart beats for the nations. And so before we jump into Nehemiah 5, let's just pause and let's pray. As we see the flags, as we see the nations that are represented in the Olympics, and just praying for the gospel and God's work among the nations. Father, God, today is a gift. For some reason, you just, you brought this to my mind this morning, and I'm thankful. God, today is a gift. I need Redemption Hill Church. I need, and it's a gift to serve alongside of the teams you've gathered today. God, I need the people of God full of the Spirit of God singing. God, we thank you for today. God, it's a gift to us. And so God, help us receive today as a gift. And God, as we look to you, a good, good Father, God, we see your heart for the nations. God, we see and we're reminded that you sent Jesus who died for every tribe, tongue, language, and people. God, as we stand before you, God, it's humbling that you're a God that, that's heart beats for the world. And God, we want that to be our heart. And so God, as the eyes of the world are on the Olympics and the nations are represented, God, would you increase the temperature in our hearts that the nations might worship, that your name would be brought glory and fame among the nations. And so, God, as we see medal counts go up across the nations, God, would you help our hearts and our response to be to pray? God, would you send laborers? Would you raise up laborers? God, would your gospel work go forth to the ends of the earth? God, we pray for the many missionaries and laborers right now among the nations. God, there, there are a handful in our church that, that we're just financially supporting. I think of the Coppingers and the Luce family. I think of um, uh, Montreal and Renaissance Church. And God, I think of even Sylvanus, who's right now in Nepal. God, God, would you work through their ministries? God, would you strengthen them? And God, would you give favor to your gospel work that you might be glorified among the nations? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, let me catch us up to speed on where we're at in Nehemiah. And if you're new, this is a book that we're going to be walking through in the coming months. And uh, so God has sent Nehemiah to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. We saw in chapter 2 where Tanner preached a sermon, the foundation of favor, where, where he, the favor of God was upon him. And he went to the king, and the, the king gave him permission to go back to Jerusalem and inspect the walls. And, and he was broken as he inspected the walls. And he came back and he gave a report. And he's like, hey, we've got to go back and rebuild these walls. And in, in Nehemiah 2, the people said, let us arise and build. And so then we come to chapters 3 and 4. And to be completely honest, Tanner was planning to preach a sermon on, on chapters 3 and 4 last Sunday before the blizzard hit. And so here's what we're going to do. Tanner actually is going to save that sermon, and he's going to preach it next week. We're going to do something I think maybe we've never done. I'm going to jump forward, 
and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to work on and, and, and walk us through Nehemiah 5 today, and then next Sunday, Tanner's going to come back and preach through 3 and 4. But I want to give us a flyby overview to, so that we have some context to understand what's happening here in Nehemiah chapter 5. And so um, in Nehemiah chapter 3, like Nehemiah's had favor, he's going to rebuild the walls, and it basically recounts the systematic work of the rebuilding and repairing of the walls. And if you were to just think of the city of Jerusalem and, and just think of it as a circle, Nehemiah 3 walks through and, and talks about all the gates that are being repaired, and he goes counterclockwise. And so if you were to just jump through, you would see that he starts and he recounts the sheep gate and then the fish gate and the gate of Yeshanah and then the valley gate and the dung gate. And he keeps going around the fountain gate and the horse gate and he ends back up at the sheep gate. And he, he's recounting how all around the city, the walls are being rebuilt and they're being repaired. And here's the point of chapter three. Chapter three shows the concerted effort of all of the people as a whole to respond to Nehemiah's challenge to rebuild the walls. They did it in faith and trust in God's provision, and they did it together. And then we come to chapter 4. In chapter 4, it picks back up, and I'll just read verse 1. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. What we see in chapter 4 is that the rebuilding wasn't without opposition. Sanballat and his allies were angry that the walls were being rebuilt, and they plotted to thwart this plan. So how did Nehemiah and the people respond? They prayed. I love this. And I can't preach it. I'm going to save it for Tanner next week. But multiple times over and over, as they're faced with opposition, they pray to God. They pray and they look to God. They continue to work hard. Verse 6 says this. It says, uh, so we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So they were faithful. They worked on the wall. They worked hard, and they looked to God with confidence. They said, our God will fight for us. And then at the very end of the chapter, not only did they work hard, but they were prepared. They were prepared to take action. And so you've got some people working on the walls while the others are watching. And, and Nehemiah says, hey, we're all staying in the city because we're going to trust that our God is going to be with us and he is going to help us fight. So then we come to chapter 5. Now here's what's going on as we pack, pick up here in chapter 5. Not only was there external opposition to the rebuilding, there was internal opposition to, to the rebuilding of the walls. And, and in chapter 5, the focus shifts from the broken walls to the broken ways of the people. The structure at stake in chapter 5 is the very community itself. And so let's beginning here and, and let's read through this. Nehemiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, the Word of God says this, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And then there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. 
verse 6, we see Nehemiah's response. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses in the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore though these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor, who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year, to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Here's what I want to do. I know there's a lot there. I want to make an attempt at summarizing the narrative for us to make sure we understand what's happening here. And then I want to come back and zero in and ask this question. What was Nehemiah's primary motivation in leading this people? So let's look here. Let's, jump, let's walk through this. At first, we see the great outcry. We see that in verses 1 through five. You see these words, there, there arose a great outcry. This language here is similar language. It's, it's echoing what the people said as they were enslaved in Egypt back in Exodus. This great outcry, the, the oppression that the Israelites faced under Egyptian oppression. Go read about that in Exodus 2.23 or 3.9. But this was a cry for justice to their own people. It wasn't like there was another people that was being unjust to us. They were being unjust within the very same community. It was an outcry from Jews to Jews and about Jews. And it mentions the wives here um, because most likely the men 
were the majority of the ones working on the walls, and they were not able to do their usual work and provide for the families. And so just like, let's make sure we understand the situation. Nehemiah is leading this rebuilding campaign on the walls. They're now facing external opposition between Sanballat and all of the allies. And so he's, he's, he's trying to do what God's led him to do. And at the very same time, the threat to this work is injustice happening within his very own community. This is a tension that, that Nehemiah is going to have to manage. And so, you know, as they were rebuilding the walls, there's no doubt here that what we see in Nehemiah 5 is that there was economic strain that was put on the community. Think of all the manpower that's been redirected from the harvest and the crops to rebuilding the walls, and that the crops and harvest would have been how they would have gained food to feed and provide for their families. And so this has become a burden on the people, and we see this made explicit here in verse 2, where they say our goal is just to eat to get grain to eat that we may keep alive. So the people were struggling to make it financially and suffering from a lack of food. Now, this was partially due, we see in verse 3, that, it, that he mentions a famine at the very end of verse 3, and our house is to get green because of the famine. So in addition to all of the rebuilding and the opposition, there's a famine going on in the land. And so what were they to do? And so the rest of verses 1 through 5 unpacks, this is what the wives and the people were doing to try to survive. He goes on down through verse 3. They were mortgaging their fields. Or we, I think one translation says they were using it as collateral. Mortgaging their fields, their vineyards, their houses to get food. They were also borrowing money because there were also taxes on these fields that they received that they still had to pay. So they're borrowing money, it says, to pay the king's taxes. And then as a final straw, with no other means of income, they were selling their children into slavery to pay for the taxes and food debt. We see economic slavery and and all of this, they felt powerless. Look at that in verse 5. It is not in our power to help it. The leaders and the people in Jerusalem were not just being insensitive to the needs of the people. They were exploiting the situation to their benefit. And this leads to verse 6, where Nehemiah says, and we see his response in rebuke, I was very angry. His response shows the measure of his concern and love for the people. And then it says this, I took counsel with myself. In other words, he had to get himself under control. He, he was angry. I took counsel with myself to, to get under control so that he would be in a position to actually go and address and confront the wrongs and the injustice that he had seen. And so what is it that made him angry? We see him unpacking this in verse 7. It says, I took counsel and then I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, the leaders at the time. He says, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I want you to notice this as we go through the text. You hear this mention of brother? You saw it in verse 1. Their wives against their Jewish brothers. The text is highlighting, these are your own people. It's not like you're talking about the nations here. You're talking about Jews interacting against one another in the community. And what were these nobles and officials doing? They used their power to oppress the people and enrich themselves at the expense 
of the common people. What they were doing was a practice that the law specifically forbid. I'll give you a couple of references here. We don't have time to unpack it all today, but you can go look at Exodus 22:25. You can go look at Leviticus 25, starting in verse 36 and following. And then you can go read Deuteronomy 29, verses 19 through 20. These leaders and officials were not acting like brothers. And so what does Nehemiah do? It says he brings charges against them. He holds an assembly and he calls out their injustice. We see that in verses 7 and 8. He calls their injustice out. He charges them in verses 10 to stop. He says, the, he says moreover, I ask them to stop, to, who are lending money, abandon this exacting of interest. You need to stop disobeying God's decree and God's law and you need to return and you need to repent. You need to give everything back. And what do they do? They actually respond favorably to Nehemiah's challenge. So what we see here is that in a very difficult situation, we see Nehemiah's leadership, his boldness and his courage. And as a result of that, the, how do the people respond? We see that um, in verse 12. They said, we will restore and require nothing from them. We'll do as you say. And Nehemiah says, I'm gonna you're going to make an oath. I'm going to promise that you're going to keep your word. And they say, hey, that's fine. We're going to do it. And so then it continues that everything was given back and the people did as they had promised. And then we have this verses 14 through 19 section, which doesn't seem to really relate. Nehemiah is talking about and this is the first time we hear about Nehemiah being governor. So he's in this official position. He'd been governor for 12 years. And you hear this story about the food allowance and like, how does this relate to what's going on? Here's how it relates. Nehemiah then gives a positive example. Because he's already rebuked the leaders and he says, don't do this. Instead, this is what you should have done. And, and he gives an example of himself and how he provided and cared for the people. And here's what we learn. As a part of his job as, as governor, that he was responsible for hosting and entertaining both domestic and foreign dignitaries. Now, as a governor, he had the right to take a food allowance to actually provide and care for them. But what does he say? He says, me and my brothers, verse 14, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. And then he says, previous governors have come and they've charged as much as like 40 shekels because how's he going to get the food allowance? He's going to tax the people. The people are going to pay for this. And he's like, look at previous governors. They've taxed the people. But what am I going to do? He says, but I did not do so because of fear of God. He says, I persevered on the work of the wall. We acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. And so he, then he describes, here's what I took out of my own pocket. There were at his table 150 and he talks about this being a daily thing. Verse, verse 18, now what was prepared at my expense for each day? I want you to think about this. Every day, I mean, we're not told specifically, but let's assume this happened every day for 12 years. An ox a day, six sheep, six birds. And every 10 days, an abundance of wine. At my expense, you do the math. How many oxen in 12 years? How many sheep? How many birds? At his own expense. And why didn't he do that? Why did he do that? Verse 18. At the very end, he says, because, he says, yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. You see, care 
you see compassion. Does everybody get what's happening here in the story? You guys with me? I want to now return. And here's the question I want us to zero in. And then the implications I want to draw for us today. What motivated Nehemiah? And I want to draw your attention to two verses in this whole narrative. First, look at verse 9. I intentionally skipped over it because I knew I was coming back to it. Verse 9, in in the middle of, of rebuking the nobles and the leaders, he says this. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. If you want a key verse to this whole narrative, underline verse 9. Verse 9 is the key verse to understanding this. What you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to to prevent the taunts and the nations of our enemies? Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? We see that phrase show up a second time in verse 15. When I'm studying the Bible and I see something repeated, man, my eyes are going off. The light bulbs are going off for me. I'm like, hey, why is the text repeating this? Look down. Look at verse 15. When he gives the reasoning, he says, The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took for them the daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. According to Nehemiah, central to fixing and repairing the Jews' broken ways was a recentering of their affections and relationship to God. Nehemiah called them to walk in the fear of God. And so here's the point, and the thing he called them to is the same thing that God wants us to get today. Daily walk in the fear of God and cultivate a passion for the glory of his name. Daily walk in the fear of God and cultivate a passion for the glory of his name. For the rest of our time here, I want to walk through and unpack how Nehemiah 5, what it teaches us about how to daily walk in the fear of God. And the first truth, let me give you three truths. The first one is this. If we're going to daily walk in the fear of God, we must humbly submit to God in his word and wholly strive to please him. We must humbly submit to God in his word and wholly strive to please him. As you think about this phrase, fear of God, it is a central command in the scriptures. I could give many examples. We could go to Proverbs, but I just want to share one from Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13 says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your Good. This is a key text in Deuteronomy. And let's just simmer on it here for a second. I want you to just like meditate on this text with me. So we draw out some implications for us. And it starts with this. What does God require of us? What does he want in my life? If you're here today and you're like, this is a great question to ask. God, what do you want from me? What does he say here? He starts off first, fear God. Fear God. If you want to take a phrase that can just shape an orientation of your life, it would be a desire to fear the Lord your God. And and I'm going to unpack that more in a second. But we see fear God, we see walking. So fearing God implies walking in God's ways. But notice this. He also connects it with love, to love him to serve him. This idea of that there's, there's love, there's worship, and it's holistic. All of your heart and your soul. That's why in the truth I said there that it's to strive to please him wholly. 
It's not just to like keep the letter of the law. It's like, God, here's my life. Like to walk in the fear of God is to give all of you are, it's a response of all of you are to all of who he is. Now, as we think about this phrase, fear of God, let's first start by thinking about natural fear. Does anybody have any natural fears? Look, everybody throw your hands up. Some of you guys are just lying to me today, all right? Look, I got fears. I'm scared of things. Like, it may be spiders. Hey, Dad, can you come kill this spider? When we think of things we fear, it's like we want to avoid them and flee from them, right? So it may be looking out your window on Saturday morning and seeing, like, a sheet of ice across your car and the sidewalk. It's like, nope. I, like, it's my dog. I'm taking her out. You know, like, Coco, let's go. No way, Dad. Like, I'm coming back in. Anybody else? Like, any, okay, it's just my dog. But, like, there's fear. I'm, there's no way I'm stepping foot on that. It may be looking straight down a double black diamond. It's like, nope, not doing that. Like, there are all kinds of things that can arouse natural fear in us. But here's the point I want you to get. When we think about natural fear, our response naturally is to avoid and to flee. When we think about godly fear, we can't just like carry that over as we think of the fear of God. The Puritan John Flavel says this, godly fear does not arise from a perception of God as hazardous, but glorious. Let me repeat that. Godly fear does not arise from a perception of God as hazardous, but glorious. Now, let me unpack that for you a little bit. True and godly fear realizes that the best solution isn't running from God, but running to him. Like when my daughter sees a spider and runs out of the room and says, Dad, like she's like, if like we take that and apply it to God, it's like we could see this fear of God as somebody I'm supposed to run from. But that's not, like, this command, when Nehemiah is saying, you ought to fear God, he's, he's not saying run from God. He's saying run to him. Look, God isn't interested in a legal relationship where we want to escape, but rather a relationship where we view ourselves as family and we want to cultivate. We sing that song earlier. God, you are a good, good Father, that's inviting us to experience God as a loving father. That's not somebody we run from. That's somebody we run to. When you run to him, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find the embracing arms of a loving father. He is a personal God. Fear the Lord your God. This is the Lord who says, I am who I like. This is like the personal covenantal God of Israel. It's not some distracted or some distinct, like this is a very personal God. Fear him. He's the covenantal God who extends mercy and compassion and love and faithfulness. This is the God who bound himself in love to you through the gospel. I get a little excited talking about this. You can tell. I love this reflection from Ray Ortland on how the fear of God should shape our lives. Listen to this. He says, the fear of the Lord takes us away from beyond technical compliance with the biblical law. It's possible to obey the Ten Commandments while resenting them deeply inside. But the fear of the Lord creates a heart of total openness. Catch this. Father, I am yours. How can I actively, fully please you right now? Nehemiah is saying, ought you not to walk in the fear of God? So to walk in the fear of God means to humbly submit to God and his word and wholly strive to please him. It means to live in such a way in such a God-centered way that he shapes, about, he shapes everything in your life. You build your life around God. His voice and opinion is the most important voice and opinion in your life. Is it? 
what happened in Nehemiah's time is that the people were not walking in the fear of God. They had neglected God's word. I mean, the reason Nehemiah is saying, look, stop this exacting of interest, and we're going to look at it in a second, is because God, it's not like God wasn't clear. He had been really clear. Do not do this. They were not submitting to God's ways. And so Israel's primary problem was not opposition from its enemies, but their lack of devotion and commitment to God. The second truth about learning to walk in the fear of God is this. We should turn away from evil and confess and repent of sin. Nehemiah called them to repent and make right the injustices they had done. And he calls them to a genuine and costly, I mean, think about the cost of this repentance. You give everything back, and every dime you've taken from them, return it. There are two main reasons I want to say that he's calling them this. One, they had broken God's laws, we'd seen. Like it was an, an explicit breaking of God's command. But second, his second reason is the history of God's deliverance that even get, led to the giving of those laws. Now, what do I mean by that? Look here with me in Nehemiah 5. Look at verse 8. It says, And he said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who've been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. You see the picture here? Look, he's saying, You just came out of exile. You were enslaved to the nations, and God just bought you back. Are you really going to now go enslave your own brothers? He's historically looking back at what God had done and provided for them. And this is the very same argument that God uses when he gives them the law in Leviticus 25. And I've got this on the screen for us. Leviticus 25, I know it's a long text but I want you to hang in here with me because there's some really good gold here for us to grasp. Leviticus 25, starting in verse 35. Listen to what the law says and specifically think about how you apply that, how you would have applied that to this situation in Nehemiah's time. It starts with this. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but what? Fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Let's hit pause. What's his, he's saying, fear God. And he's like, remember this, you were just enslaved and I brought you out. Now don't go do that to your brother. Let's continue. If your brother becomes poor beside you, and sells himself to you. You shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants who I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. You think Nehemiah had Leviticus 25 in mind as he's confronting the nobles and the officials? You're not fearing God. He's spoken pretty clearly about this situation. You ought to walk in the fear of him. So walking in the fear of God means we turn away from evil and we confess 
and we repent of sin. As we think about the gospel, meditate on this with me. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty that you deserve to pay. Jesus freed you from slavery to sin and invited you to life. The offer of the gospel is come and live. Don't live in slavery. Sin enslaves you. But when you come to me, there is freedom and there is life. And so when we look to the gospel, it ought to remind us, I mean, let's not continue living in sinful ways. Let's confess that. Let's repent of that. And let's run after Jesus. What we see here in Nehemiah 5 is a great picture of repentance. If you want to know, like, what does actual repentance look like? It means turning away from the sin to God. Nehemiah says, stop doing this. So when we hear the call, when we're confronted with our sin, it's to stop. It's to confess it, and it is to turn. And we see this in how they responded. It is a picture for us. It means making wrongs right no matter the cost. So let me ask you, what's keeping you as your sin is, re is revealed from repenting and turning? Is it the cost is too high? And so what I want to plead with you is when you fear God and you have a passion for the glory of his name, no cost is too high. It is worth it. And you have the arms of a loving father who's already paid for it, who's inviting you to enjoy the life that is found in him. When we fear God, we're compelled to hate and turn away from evil and sin. And let me say this, it radically changes the way we fight sin. Look, community groups and D groups are great at Redemption Hill. Like, if you haven't connected yet, it's a great place to, to connect and find community. But if you're not cultivating a fear for God, you can be a complete fake at any of those. You can pretend to have it all together. But at the heart of what, I, yes, connect with a community group and a discipleship group, but above all, fear God. Worship him with your life. The third truth as we think about fearing God is this. Live justly and love others sacrificially. At this point in time, what was most needed was not lending, but giving. At this point in time, what was most needed was generosity and kindness and compassion to people in need, your own brothers and sisters. What was needed was sacrifice. And that's why verses 14 through 19 are shared with us because Nehemiah is a great example of the generous lifestyle and sacrifice that was needed. It, it exemplifies what Proverbs 14, 31 says, which is this, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Living justly and loving others sacrificially exemplifies what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Nehemiah for us is an example that Jesus ultimately fulfills. Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Sacrificial service. Go look at the Apostle Paul. If you want a passage to read this week on sacrifice, go read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where it says, I laid down many privileges to be a servant of all. He says, I forfeited, forfeited rights that even I rightly could have taken because I was serving others. What freed Nehemiah from the enjoyment of these privileges? 
Like, why did Nehemiah say, I'm not taking the governor's food allowance? I would say this. It was a greater joy. He knew something better than money and food. And this is why he prays the way he does in verse 19. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is not a self-righteous prayer. It is a prayer of faith that says something like this. God looks unfavorably with those who fear him and do his will. God ultimately is the one who rewards those who live for him instead of living for themselves. And so Nehemiah is saying, nobody may ever see the sacrifice that I'm making. God, you do. And you reward those who fear you and who walk in your way. Your fear of God should be evident in how you love others. Hear me on this. God is concerned with justice and compassion, especially for the weak, the oppressed, and the neglected. As we grow in our fear of God, so should our compassion and desire for justice grow. In other words, as our love for God is exploding and growing vertically, horizontally, it ought to be evident in our love and compassion for the people around us. And this is why John says in 1 John three seventeen. but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And so let me give you a practical next step as we wrap up. There are many ways and needs to love and serve others at Redemption Hill Church. This past week, my heart leapt with joy as I heard story after story of tangible examples of how community groups and people in community groups are sacrificially loving, caring, and serving for hurting people and very tangible needs in our church. As a pastor, even though I didn't do any of it, I want to say, yes, thank you. I love hearing that because it's evidence of the work of God among our people. And so if you're looking for ways to love and serve others, connect with a community group. And this isn't just a check on the box. Like you're, It's going to be hard to hear about very tangible needs on a Sunday morning like this. But when you go and are just living real, transparent, honest life with people and community, you're going to hear about needs and they're going to be very wet, tangible ways where you can love and serve others. It's also going to be a place where you can receive love and care for, from others. So as we wrap up, you could be tempted to think that the fear of God is something like that you just hear about in the Old Testament. But just as Nehemiah was striving to fulfill the mission God gave him, if we as a church are going to be faithful to the mission that God has given us, we must walk in the fear of God. Of God, Our own personal holiness and our striving for justice and our desire to fear God is essential. And I want to end with one verse in Acts chapter 9. You see the early church that's beginning to grow and expand. And listen to what God's word says. It says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of God of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. There is no question in my mind that if we will be a similar kind of church that God uses where the word of God and the gospel continues to multiply in Boston, in New England, we must be a people, yes, that walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, but in the fear of the Lord.
And so the invitation to us today is to cultivate and grow a fear of God that shapes everything we do in life. Let's pray. Father, God, we ask you for grace today and for help. As we hear the words of Nehemiah and we want to look internally and, and, and inspect and evaluate our own lives, God, we pray would your word be like a sword that cuts and pierces in order to do surgery, to bring healing and renewal and restoration in our lives. God, would you grow within us a fear of God that we would see you as glorious as you are such that it would shape every relationship in our life. God, would you show us where we are not loving and serving and caring for others that display the compassion and kindness for God. God, if there are areas where we are lording and domineering over people and not loving and caring, God, help us to see that. And God, would you grow within us sacrificial and generous lives? God, we want to be like Nehemiah, who said, I'll take the personal cost so that I'm not a burden on somebody else, so that I can relieve a burden instead of heaping burdens. God, may Redemption Hill be that kind of people. God, work and cultivate that in us for the glory of your name, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.